0: This is week three of a six-week series. It's sort of an an interlude series for us because we're actually working through the book of Revelation. We paused post-chapter three to talk about amazing grace. When we finish this and get into the new year, we're going to go back to Revelation chapter four and enter the throne room of God. But this morning, mm -hmm, amazing grace. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. And worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We'll stop there. This morning, we're going to talk about sanctifying grace. Last week, Hannah did an amazing job talking to us about grace in suffering and how God's grace transforms the way we suffer The week before, we began our series by talking about abundant grace and how God's grace transforms the way we relate with God and each other. This morning, we're talking about sanctifying grace. Once God's grace has saved us, justified us, got us in his kingdom... Then we begin the journey of following him and being transformed, becoming more like him for the rest of our lives. So we call that sanctification. Grace is for sanctifying us as well, it's for transforming the way we uh, behave. Let me ask you a question Have you ever wanted to change anything about the way you behave? and yet found yourself stuck in some sort of behavioral pattern? Yep. If no, just just think real hard for a second. Surely there is something about you that could do with a little tweaking. So this is a big question. I mean, honestly, come on. I think everyone, yeah, wants to change. Um, we all want to, to grow, to mature, uh, to become better people, become, to become better humans. And this is a big part of, of, of the journey of following Jesus. He comes to rescue us from our sins, and this is, this is a cosmic, this is an eternal thing. And yet, He doesn't just sort of save us and then take off and say, Good luck, see you in heaven. Now, he he gives us grace to justify us and to also begin sanctifying us. God's grace trains us to renounce old ways of living, lawlessness, godlessness, worldly passions, to put it one way, so that we might live differently that we might be transformed to become more like Jesus, to become more like the humans that God created us to be in the first place. And that's, that's wonderful. I think you could potentially view it in a way that, oh, but I thought God loved me just the way that I am. Yes, absolutely. So much so that he wants to radically transform everything about you. Because that's what good fathers do. They do. They help us. Good moms and dads teach their kids to, to grow up because that's, that's loving. And that's what God does with us. He takes us on a journey, begins to transform not only our inner world, but the very actions, the outworkings of our lives, our behavior. So have you ever wanted to change something about the way you act and yet found yourself stuck, what does sanctification Look like how does it work in the life of someone who said yes i want to follow jesus i want to trust him for my eternity i want to trust him for my monday morning i want to surrender every aspect of my being so that he might transform me including my behavior how does that work are you working on anything at the moment So, yesterday I was driving, listening to my usual podcasts, and in a moment I felt like the Holy Spirit uh, prompted me, it was this sort of like feeling in my heart, as it were. Say, just turn off the radio, turn off the podcast, I wanna talk. So I'm like, okay, let's talk. Let's talk about your people. And it was as if the Holy Spirit was like, no, no, I wanna talk about you. I'm to talk about you my child <laughs> and I'm like okay and I prayed this prayer that I, I pray so often it's almost become like a, like a default kind of a prayer but hopefully in a good way and I said God what do you want to do in my life right now how do you want to change my behavior and it's almost like a discipline that I have in my life I have to ask that question before I stand up here God what do you want to do and I felt like the Holy Spirit convict me um and the thing i just want i just want to be totally honest like i'll share with you what i'm working on at the moment in terms of my behavior it's really hard um, it came about like this actually my parents were in town last weekend and they're so sweet i love spending time with my parents we're very blessed to have these like amazing parents and um, they were in town and the last day the last morning just before they left my mom and my dad were sitting there in the lounge and my mom turned to me and she said simon are you mad at us for any reason? And I was like, I was really caught off guard. I'm like, no, 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 not at all. Like, why, why would you even ask? And she said, well, I just, did we offend you? Did we do something? And I'm like, no, what, am I acting like, it's like I'm mad? And she very sweetly, very gently said, yeah, yeah, you are. And I'm just really worried that that perhaps we did something. Perhaps we have we, sort of invited ourselves in into your home, and it wasn't really. And um, I tried not to get defensive, but I wanted to be defensive. I'm like, no, like it's you know, what's your problem? It's I'm nice. I'm I'm pleasant. <laughs> and uh, I've been thinking about it ever since, and I realized like, yeah, I'm uh, I'm angry. I'm actually really angry. About quite a few things, a couple of things specifically. And it's coming out in my behavior, which is really hard for me because I don't really do anger. I sort of like, I, I kind of see myself as above that. I do pride, <laughs> not anger. I, th- I think I've always prided myself in my ability to like keep control of my emotions. I don't really do anger and yet it's coming out. I mean, when your own mom like, calls you out on it, you, you know it's, something's going on. And so that's, that's what I'm working on right now, and it's super complex because I'm not even entirely sure. Like I could point to a few things, but I suspect that they're slightly superficial things. Like I've got some work to do to get to the root of where the stuff is coming from. So that's where I'm at. And I'm asking God to help me inside and out. Not just like warm, fuzzy feelings in my heart, but like my actual behavior, the way this stuff works out in my life. So how does Jesus transform our behavior? How does God's grace train us to become more like Jesus? That's the question. And I want to share the answer. Number one, well, let's do all four. Next slide, please. That's Titus. There it is. The gospel, the Holy Spirit, God's word, and practice. Now, this is not my whole sermon. This is not a four-point sermon. This is actually the introduction, so I'm going to move quite quickly through these. This will probably be one of those sermons where you might want to take some notes, because I'm going to be covering quite a bit, and I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be very practical. But number one, how does change happen? How does God's grace transform our behavior? Number one, it starts with the gospel. The gospel is God's version of my reality. The gospel, the good news, the story of God, is God's authoritative version of what my life, creation, eternity, and everything in between is really like From his perspective. The gospel begins. By acknowledging. By affirming the fact that God is good. And that he created a world. And filled it with living beings. Including us. And called it good. Even called it very good. That's where the gospel starts. But then the story continues to say. But it's not as good as it used to be. Once upon a time. It was serenity. It was paradise. It was people in perfect relationship with each other and with God himself, but then something happened. There was a kind of cosmic rebellion. There was sin. There was brokenness. And since then, everything's been affected. Everything eventually seems to go wrong. Even when it's really, really good, there's still like this, this line of sin, this streak of brokenness that we experience over and over in our lives, even death itself itself. And the good news goes something like this. God didn't just stand aloof and say, well, you did this, so deal with it. You clean your own mess up. God has mercy, his deep compassion on his children. And instead of standing aloof, he comes down, he condescends, he enters into the mess. And he dies for us. Instead of letting us simply live for eternity in the wake of our own brokenness, which ultimately leads to death, God dies for us. Justice, eternal, justice is fulfilled in God, suffering the penalty for my sins and yours as well. The gospel says that because of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus, that if we turn away from trying to just simply the situation in our own strength and know-how and instead surrender to our king and say, God, help us. We're lost, we're dead, we're damned without you. I receive what you've done for me. I accept the gift and allow God to transform us, allow God to recreate us and all of creation itself. This is, this is the good news this is God's rescue plan for a broken world and broken lives. The gospel says something about my pain, my sinful habits, my insecurity, my depression, my desire to kill myself, my desire to be self-centered and live just a, an indulgent, me-centered life. The gospel tells us a new story. God says, no, That's one reality. That's one way the story could go. But the good news is that I get the final word. God has a different story. Um, Psychologists have a a name for this, this, what I'm kind of describing now. It's called narrative therapy. This idea that many of our problems and our anxiety in life is actually rooted in a story, a story of brokenness, a story of despair that oftentimes we've learned to tell ourselves over and over and over and over, perhaps for a lifetime. God comes and begins to tell us a different story, not a fictional story, like the actual story, the story from God's point of view. And we begin to learn God's narrative, and that's where transformation starts, Have you guys ever heard Martin Luther's quote on the gospel? It's one of my favorite. Martin Luther, that 16th century German pastor and theologian. Here it is. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the son of God, has done for me. Namely, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it in their heads continually. That's classic Martin Luther. He was an aggressive guy. But the point is well taken. The gospel, God's story of redemption, his version of reality is something not that we just hear one time, respond to, and then move on from. It's the truth that we must continually come back to, reorient our life around. It's the story we must embrace and learn to tell ourselves over and over and over. And that's where change starts. But that's only the beginning. Because unless the very Spirit of God Takes the story, story of God and makes it a reality in our hearts. It's only ever just an idea. And if you've been around Grace City for a little while, you've, you've heard me say it a hundred times. Jesus didn't come just to give us a new philosophy, worldview, spirituality, teaching, religion, etc. He came to fundamentally do something for us so that we could experience not just the idea of new life, but actual new life itself, beginning now and for eternity. This is a work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness to God's story. This is also known as Revelation. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, this is Romans 8, 15, and 16, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, that's the Aramaic phrase, like daddy, Abba, father, and the spirit himself bears witness witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Call it warm and fuzzy, call it the holy tingles. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is that lame the holy spirit takes what otherwise simply remains in the frontal lobe and moves it into the limbic system of our brain the part of our brain that the bible refers to as our heart it makes walking with and experiencing a new reality in the wake of jesus's victory on the cross more than just a thought more than just a list of doctrinal statements. The Holy Spirit actually makes it a reality in our hearts. I am a child of God. I don't just sing the words. There's a reason why I start bawling when we sing songs like that because the Holy Spirit is like, you know this is true. You know this is true. Thirdly, God's word. Now let me sort of, unpack this a little bit um, in terms of just the actual wording because obviously the gospel the gospel story is actually in the scriptures there's four the first four books of the new testament are what we call quote-unquote gospels the gospel according to matthew mark luke and john and as you read the gospels you find the gospel embedded in the gospels if that makes sense like, there's the gospel within the gospels. The gospel is the very simple but amazing story that God came down to rescue us. And that when we turn and trust in him and obey him, then he, he rescues us. But there's so much more to the story. And after we've heard God's story, responded to it, and said, Yes, Lord Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner who needs to be rescued and the Holy Spirit begins to make that a reality in the very interior of my being, then it begs the question, what does it look like? Like, What do I actually do with my life? Like what does that look like in terms of how I act and how I relate to other people? There's a whole lot in God's word that actually speaks to like the ethics of, of my life as a follower of Jesus. What does morality look like for a child of God. It's not just left up to my feelings. The Bible is like packed full of stories. And yes, even propositional truth. About what it looks like to live out my new identity as a child of God. Um, this is what Paul's referring to in his letter to the Philippians. This is Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. When he says... Work out your salvation. There's an outworking of salvation. It's not just this this thing that happens on the inside of us. This is exactly what we're talking about. So the Bible exhorts me to act upon or behave according to my new identity in Jesus Christ. God's word, in this respect, exhorts me, encourages me, commands me, to act like who I am. And fourthly, I practice. I practice. I practice for the rest of my life living out my new identity. Philippians 4.9. Paul continues in that same letter. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. He writes in another letter to a young leader in the church named Timothy. And he says this in, in terms of encouraging him to grow as a leader and a follower of Jesus. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And so there's a very practical element to changing in a way that actually reflects the new identity that i have been given as i've heard and responded to the gospels the very spirit of christ himself is now doing a supernatural work in my inner being as i'm devouring god's word looking for direction as god's word is exhorting me to like live a particular way that aligns with my new identity i practice these things it's not magic Supernatural, but it's very practical. I practice living out my new identity in Jesus. God's grace trains me to live a new life. Simple, right? Any questions? Done, let's pray. <laughs> if only. If only. Doesn't, this, doesn't that just sound so simple? No, not really. Like, no, you lost me at the gospel. I think it is kind of simple, but it's, it's like the, the, the most simple and beautiful things in life. It is never that simple. It's like, it's like loving my, my wonderful, beautiful wife. It's not complicated. I fell in love with her. I love her. I married her. Super complicated. <laughs> and I'm sure I, we're not the exception, okay? I know we're not the exception. Love is simple and so wonderfully complicated, And so is this. What happens if we get the sequence turned around? I want to transition a little bit now. We won't take too long, but there's two things that we need to think about sequence, and then something that I call sacramental practices. What if we get the sequence of these things wrong? So, gospel, Holy Spirit, God's word practice you could say good news power God's word practice GPGP there you go what if we get the order wrong what if, we, what if we sort of skip over the story of God the Holy Spirit actually empowering us making the story reality in our own hearts and just skip right to the moral exhortation and the practice have you ever tried that have you ever forgotten about the gospel? There's like a whole book in the New Testament called Galatians all about this. Where those who started out realizing like it is by God's grace that any of this was real or even works. But somehow along the way they, they forgot, I guess. Maybe their pride Began to get the best of them. They thought, "Well, no, no, no. Grace got us in, but now it's you know we'll we'll sort it. We'll sort it out. I will sort myself out." What happens when we get the sequence of these things wrong? Well, I would suggest at least two things, two uh, two opposite sort of uh, outcomes. Number one, you you probably heard the gospel you've maybe had some sort of emotional experience that could very well have been the Holy Spirit, but if you forget those things or you simply brushed over those things and go right to actually like living out the moral exhortation, founding God's word and practicing that, either you get really good at it and you begin to get this slightly self-righteous attitude they're like, man, I've got religion on lock. I'm, I'm good at this morality stuff. Church attendance is stellar. I give. I stop cussing. I don't smoke. And you can begin to almost get this sense of moral superiority. And you begin to look around at the people around you who are struggling, who aren't getting it, who, who aren't doing what you're doing. you begin to think, like, well, what is your problem? This is the mistake that I made. I don't have time to go into it. I have done this. I have done this. I will be the first to confess. Like, what is your problem? I'm not struggling with this particular sin anymore. What is your problem? And you can begin to get this sense of like, well, I'm really good at biblical morality. Therefore, I must, I must know something that you don't, or I must be better or holier than thou. It's, it's, uh, it stinks. It's what the world doesn't need any more of. Conversely, Conversely, if we brush over the gospel and the Holy Spirit and simply focus on living a moral or a biblical life and practicing that, you could be more like me and just find out that you're rubbish at it. Like you're way better at sinning. <laughs> the kind of sin that we normally call sin. Okay, hypocrisy and self righteousness is also totally sinful, it just looks like godliness. You could find that like this whole like, being good and following Jesus is super hard and you're terrible at faking it and so you end up just feeling disillusioned and you're like, dude, I tried the Christianity thing. It didn't work. I'm still stuck. I don't feel any different. I'm certainly not acting any different. And you could end up coming to the conclusion that Jesus doesn't really work. His grace isn't really sufficient because I tried it and it didn't work. Maybe, who am I to say that you, you know, I don't know, maybe you did. I would argue that you didn't. I would say, can we talk about the gospel? What do you know about your identity in Christ? How do you see that? How do you understand that? I regularly have conversations with people who say, I'm a Christian. I grew up in church. I've been a Christian my whole life. And I say, cool, let's talk about that. And they don't really actually even understand what it means to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's highly problematic. That can end up in self righteousness or utter disillusionment. Neither one's super good. So, sequence matters. We don't ever graduate from the gospel. We don't ever stop needing more of the Holy Spirit. I love what the Apostle Paul says about the Spirit. He says, don't get drunk with alcohol. Don't get drunk with wine. Get drunk with the Spirit of God. That means keep drinking. Keep drinking every day. More living water, please. No, I had some yesterday. Keep drinking. Yesterday's living water isn't sufficient for today. It's more than enough. You got to keep getting filled. You must be being filled every day. We need more Holy Spirit all the time. And if you're like, oh, that's not theologically correct, whatever, get over it. (laughs) I know theologically correct, all right? And I also know that I need more of the Spirit every day. Okay, let's talk about sacramental practices. Two sacraments that are most familiar to most Christians, baptism and communion. Communion. It's called different things. But being submerged in water is a picture of dying with Jesus and coming back to life because of who he is and what he's done. And then the bread and the wine, it's a symbol of his body and his blood. He gave both. He died for my sins. And we do this virtually every week as we remember who he is, what he's done for us until he comes again. Um, If you grew up Lutheran, most Lutherans actually consider confession sort of a third kind of sacrament. And if you grew up Catholic or you consider yourself to be more Catholic, you have seven sacraments. And there's a whole theological debate about like, well, what, what should be considered a sacrament or not? Honestly, I don't really care. I mean, I do. I think it's important. But in the grand scheme of things, it's secondary. It really is secondary. It's something we can debate about, but we shouldn't divide over. Okay? Okay. There are certain things, whether you like officially label them a sacrament or not, I would describe as sacramental practices. Things that you can do, habits that you can develop, develop practices that you can participate in that can be like a means of receiving more of God's grace. Like a medium, like a channel for God's grace. And I want to quickly give you five of them, and then we're going to end. Can we go to the next slide, please? Oh, this is, this is good, actually. This is concerning <laughs> sequence. Take a picture if you need to. The gospel must always precede moral exhortation because in God's economy of change, behavior transformation always proceeds spirit-born regeneration. I just did sum it up. That's, that's it. That's everything I said summed up. <laughs> the gospel must always come before moral exhortation. Because in God's economy of change, behavior transformation always proceeds from spirit-born regeneration. It's what I described about the sequence. You can't start practicing Christ-like ethics... If your heart hasn't even been regenerated by the spirit yet. Does that make sense? So you could just meditate on that one for a while. Seriously, it's, this is, this. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Sacramental practices. Number one, confession. Verse 12 says, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Passions. Renounce. Elsewhere, that word is translated as deny. In fact, in most of the New Testament, that word is deny, deny. With your own mouth, confess that this is not who I am. As a child of God, this is not what I'm meant to act like. Now, I might have certain behavioral patterns that I'm trying to break, old habits that I'm trying to get set free from, but that is not me. I confess it. I renounce it. I deny it. I am new. This is th- this, These old sin habits, that's not me. That's not me. Confession, actually admitting, embracing with your own mouth, agreeing with God about who he says you are. It could be sin, confessing like, look, I've been doing this certain sinful thing. I feel convicted about it. I feel ashamed of it, and I, wanna, I, wanna just, I want the light to shine on it. I want to get it out in the open. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to cover it up. I'm certainly not trying to justify it. I want to confess it because I want more of God's grace in this area of my life. Conversely, it could be something, not sin per se, but perhaps you have a shattered like, sense of wholeness. Perhaps you're like, like, uh, insecure all the time. Anxiety. You get very defensive around people because you you don't see yourself the way God sees you. You lack confidence in who God says you are. And sometimes we have to confess, God, I, I don't see myself the way you see me. When I look in the mirror, I see ugly, I see stupid, I see loser. I confess that none of those things are from you. I confess that none of those emotions are from heaven. I confess that those could very well be lies from the pit of hell. I confess that, Lord God, you are true. I confess that in Jesus, I am more than a conqueror through him who strengthens me. I confess that in Jesus, I am an adopted son or daughter of God. I confess that because of who you are and what you've done for me, I am new. I am new, and I'm not who I acted like yesterday I'm not my sin and I'm not even my feelings in this moment I am who you say I am and I confess it number two verse 14 says Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us and purify for himself a people for his own possession Jesus suffered with a vision The author of Hebrews said it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the shame of the cross Jesus didn't deny himself as it were because it was just the right thing to do because he had a vision he was denying himself because his father's will said that there was a joy before him Guys, when it comes to transforming our behavior, when it comes to acting different, let me tell you something. Don't ever, ever, ever decide to stop acting one way without a vision for God's better. It's like I learned this a long time ago. I have friends with a psychologist 20 years ago. And I said, how do you counsel people to quit smoking cigarettes? And he's like, well, number one, I don't tell them to attempt it unless they determine first what they're giving it up for. You have to substitute it for something better. In the Bible, sin is whatever is less than God's vision for reality. God's vision for creation. Uh, think of like sexuality. God has a vision for my body. He has a vision for my body. My body is not my own. It belongs to Jesus and my wife. Amen. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me. God has a vision for my body. God has a vision for anything that He's entrusted to me. It's all gift my body, my money, my time, my relationships. These are all gifts from God. God has a vision for these things. And so if I'm going to give up acting one way, I need to get to grips with, well, God, what is your vision for fill in the blank? What is your vision? Because I believe that you've got the very best possible vision for my life. And I'm not just letting go of one behavior. I'm dropping it so that I might more fully embrace God's best for my life. That's what glorifies God the most. And that, that's what leads to maximum joy and satisfaction in my life. Three more. I'm just going to run through them real quick. Number three is curiosity. The sacramental practice of curiosity. Number four is patience. And number five is friendship. Curiosity is very much connected with vision. Vision. If you have a sinful habit in your life and you hate it and you can't figure out why, even though I hate it and I confess it and I don't want it, I keep coming back to it. It's like a dog who who eats up his own vomit. Like, why, 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 why? I hate this. I don't want this. Take it away from me. And I keep coming back to it. Guys, don't just try to manage your behavior. Be curious as to why. I love what the psalmist wrote, David, King David In Psalm 139, this beautiful prayer that he ends with by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Don't just try to manage your unwanted behavior. Be curious about it. Bring it to God and ask the question, Why? Why do I keep acting this way? Why do I keep self destructing this way? Why do I keep sinning this way? God, won't you help untangle the knot that is my soul? Search my heart, expose my anxious thoughts, and lead me in your way. Be curious. Don't just try to stop. Ask a why. Be patient. And friendship. Patience is simply we wait in hope. We wait in hope, we wait in hope, we wait in hope. You know what the opposite of patience is? It's not impatience. It's, hold on, I wrote it down. <laughs> I say it's hopelessness. It's hopelessness. It's this feeling that I've been waiting for a while and I'm beginning to wonder if there's any point in even waiting. At all I'm losing hope we don't become imp- impatient when we're enjoying ourselves it's not like man this is the best day of my life gosh darn when, when's it gonna end <laughs> it's when we've been waiting and things are hard and hope begins to wane we begin to, to doubt to wonder is God's version better is God actually faithful are his promises true And we begin to lose hope. Friendship, to sum it all up, can we stand together, please? If you're serious about seeing God's grace transform your behavior, please don't attempt to do it alone. You will fail. I will say it just as boldly as that. Titus, you're like, oh, where do you get this? Where's your Bible verse? I got your Bible verse. Titus, he's mentioned elsewhere in scripture. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul, he's he's traveling, sharing the gospel. He's experiencing suffering. He's being tempted to lose hope at every turn. And it said that he was looking for his brother, Titus. In fact, it said in Troas, he even had an opportunity for effective ministry, but he refused. He passed it up because he was looking for Titus. Finally, he came to Macedonia, and he found his brother, and he said that he was comforted with a comfort that came straight from the heart of God because he found his friend Titus. It's fundamental to how we experience God, to how we experience his grace in every aspect. Is it personal? Yes, of course. It's deeply personal. Is it private? Ah, not so much. It's why we gather. It's why we refer to ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why what we're building here, it can often feel a little messy and complicated because it's family Yes, that's our hope. If you're trying to navigate change in your life, if you're trying to learn how to act more like a child of God and you're struggling, my question is, who, who are your friends? Who have you locked arms with? Where's your, and I'm not talking about like the occasional random person. I'm talking about like, no, we, we have locked arms You know where I'm at. You know what I'm going through. We talk regularly. We cut right to the chase. We get into it. Because God's grace is experienced in friendship. We need to call it a morning. We're out of time. Can we pray together? You're now listening to Grace City, Portland.